You may be seated. Turn to Philippians 4. This morning, Philippians 4. <clears throat> if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we have been in a series that I've called Growth Steps. And my goal throughout this series has been to help you and I break down the essential steps of spiritual growth in all of our spiritual journeys. I've not pretended that the things that we've covered have been comprehensive, that if you could check these five or six things off your list, you are a mature Christian. That's certainly not the case. But I think it's important for us as a church to regularly revisit these topics. And I just want to briefly review where we've gone. First, we started with the first step all of us have to take in obedience to Jesus is to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus has come and died and risen from the dead to save us from our sins. And if you remember that, we talked about how Christians need to believe the gospel every day because the gospel is the message that you and I cannot do anything by our own power but that we are fully reliant on Jesus to do anything. We talked about the second step that is so clear in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and that is the step of identifying with Jesus through biblical baptism. Then we talked about how that is so deeply connected with the step of church membership. And we spent two different weeks on that topic explaining why church membership why it's biblical, why it's neglected so often, and um, how we can know that we should join a church. And then just a few weeks ago, we talked about how to grow spiritually in Ephesians chapter number four. And we learned how God has given us two primary gifts through his spirit to grow spiritually through the church. He's given us word teachers, pastors, and he's given us truth speakers in the pew. And as church people, if you want to grow spiritually, it's on you to avail yourself to those resources as often as possible. If you want people to help you grow spiritually, you cannot do that if you don't show up to church and build a relationship with other truth speakers. And you also have to have a humility and an attitude to allow people to speak truth into your life. And the same is true for word teachers. If God has given you a gift in a word teacher, you have to be in church to hear the word. Then last week, we talked about serving and ministry as an essential step of growth in your Christian life. And we looked at the example of Jesus, who had every right to be served, but in that early church gathering, you could say in the upper room, he served others. I tried to make the case that every Christian, certainly every church member, needs to be engaged in regular ministry in the church. Today, we're going to talk about the final growth step in our series. And that is the growth step of giving financially. Now, the mention of that topic for some of us may create instant feelings of discomfort. 
Isn't that true? There's so much stigma around giving, especially with preachers talking about giving, because really the reality is, is that there are a lot of people out there that are more interested in lining their pockets than in preaching the Bible. And as Americans, I think we all ought to be self-aware uh, enough to know that more so than maybe some Christians, we have an odd attachment to money that is unique to our culture in our area. Most Christians around the world probably aren't as prone to hold on to their money as maybe some of us are because we live in a culture that glorifies money, perhaps borderline worships it. You might be worried that I will guilt you into giving more to the church. And I have good news for you if you're worried about being guilted into giving that none of this message will use guilt as a motivation for giving. So if you happen to be feeling guilty, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to have to blame the Holy Spirit for that one. You might be tempted to get upset. How dare that preacher talk about money? Shouldn't he just be focusing on the spiritual stuff? Well, what we're going to see in our passage today in Philippians 4 is that giving is a very spiritual act of worship to God. But the truth of the matter is, the reason it's in our series is that we have to address giving if we want to grow spiritually. Here's my observation. And I've asked several pastors about this and they would say the same. Biblical giving is often the last step of growth somebody takes. And it is often the first thing people set aside when they begin to drift from God. Biblical giving is often the last step of growth somebody takes. And it is often the first thing to go when somebody is drifting from God. Now, while this subject could cause guilt, fear, anxiety, maybe even anger, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, as we turn to our passage this morning, we're going to notice a tone of celebration as Paul writes to a church that was extremely generous to him when they had every reason not to be. And he's going to celebrate giving. And I think what we're going to see in our text this morning and how we're going to break down the passage is I'm going to show you four reasons to joyfully give to God's work through the church. In our passage, there's going to be four reasons to joyfully give to God's work through the church. And what you're going to see in these four reasons that if you aren't giving at all, or perhaps not giving sacrificially, you're just simply missing out. Let's look to God's word in Philippians 4 starting in verse 14, and we will read through verse 20. Paul says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. 
Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus, who's the messenger boy of their offering, the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, Unto God in our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The first reason Paul gives us to joyfully give is so that we can experience the joy of partnering with gospel work. I want to encourage you this morning to give to God's work through the church so that you can experience the joy of partnering with gospel work. In verses 14 through 16, Paul's rejoicing because this church, the Philippian church, because they, their consistent giving to Paul's ministry reflected a deep partnership with his gospel work. I want you to notice how Paul describes their partnership, their connection, their investment in the gospel work. In verse number 14, he uses that word, communicate, which is the same word we get fellowship from. There's this deep mutual bond that is, he's saying that they have, they have fellowship in their giving. And then verse number 15, look at verse number 15. He says that no church communicated with me. So he says it again, no church fellowshiped with me as concerning giving and receiving. You and I, when we think of fellowships, what do we think of? Fried chicken and potlucks, baby. But in Paul's mind, fellowship was so much deeper than a meal. Fellowship is a partnership in the gospel. Now, it can include fried chicken. Somebody say amen to that. It can include that, but partnership is so much deeper than that. It includes prayers. It includes love. It includes support. And it also includes financial giving. Then I want you to notice in verses 14 through 16, Paul talks about his affliction. He says, you've given, you communicated with me in verse number 14 with my affliction. In verse number 16, he says, you sent to my necessity. Now, what I want you to point out there is, is the very important word, my. Paul's dealing with some problems. He's dealing with affliction and he has needs. Of course, if you understand the background of this letter, Paul's in prison. And in their day, you had two choices with prison. You could be in the Roman prison, which was very oppressive, uh, very bad, and you would basically starve. Or the Roman government allowed certain prisoners to be under house arrest. But the problem with that is, is that the Roman government did not sponsor a cushy prison. You had to self-sponsor that and what Paul's friends recognize is that the apostle could be a lot better apostle if he had house arrest. He couldn't go anywhere, but he could write letters, to which all of us are thankful that Paul got to write those letters. 
So Paul says, I had this need, I had this difficulty in my life. But what is interesting to me about the Philippian church is that they didn't view Paul's need as his need. It was his need. It was his problem. But the Philippian church saw it as their problem and their need that they could supply and they would meet that need not just through their prayers, but through their regular giving. Notice that he says in verse number 16 that their partnership financially was regular. Once and again, you sent to my necessity. Now you may not realize this, but the church in Philippi was the last church you would expect to be the premier sponsor of Paul's ministry. They were the poorest church he'd started. Most scholars agree. These are not people who were in a high middle-class area of the country. These were people who were very poor. You recognize that they were very persecuted if you read the rest of the letter. These are people that if, if, they, if they could have thought, okay, who's the person who should give to Paul's work? Who would it be most fair for them to support Paul? They would have thought of the church at Corinth. You know, those were the people living in the, the seaport city that did a lot of trade. These were the high-class businessmen in the church at Corinth. They would have said, those guys need to support his ministry, but the church at Philippi didn't view it that way. And I don't think neither should we. I think a lot of people, they, they don't get involved with financial giving because they always see that it's probably someone else's responsibility, the person who has more money than me. They should support the church. But Paul says, no, I want to rejoice because even though you are poor, even though you didn't have a lot, you sent once and again to my necessity. What I want you to recognize this morning, church, is that when we give, we shouldn't just give because we have to. We should give because we get to. We get to partner with the gospel work of our own local church. When you give with biblical sacrifice and generosity, you get to be a partner in the work of our church. We talked about last week how everybody should serve, but the reality is, is not everybody can serve in every way, right? Some of you, you should not be serving in a children's ministry downstairs. That may not work for you for a lot of different reasons, but you can partner with investing in the next generation of our church, maybe because you can't serve down there, but you can give to the church that is investing in those ministries. It takes money to support those things. It takes curriculum. It takes uh, facilities. It takes supplies. And so when you, when you are with our church and you may not be able to serve in every capacity for family fun night, though I'd encourage you to sign up at the back to partner with us in a volunteer capacity for family fun night, here's what I can assure you. That some of you, you may happen to be out of town that day or something like that. I know one of our church members will have to miss, uh, Miss Colleen, because she has a very important cancer follow-up appointment. But here's the reality if you happen to not be able to be involved in those events, you can partner with them because of your financial giving. You can partner together and help us put those things on and do something, here's what's interesting to me, that none of us could do by ourselves. Let's say you had a heart for the kids of this area and you wanted to reach kids and their families with the gospel. That's what we're doing through Family Fun Night. I would imagine very few of us in this room could out of our own pocket sponsor the expense that goes into that evening. I know I couldn't. 
But what's amazing is when you gather a local church together and you have different people partnering together, we could do more together than we can apart. We get to partner together, fellowship together to accomplish more for the gospel together than we can apart. When you give sacrificially, whether it's 10 or 15 or 20% of your income, you are partnering with us to keep the lights on, to keep the AC blowing or the heat going in the winter, to put fuel in our gas tanks, to get equipment stocked up, to maintain the facilities of the church. When you give, you're partnering with the ministry of your pastor, whom the church has given a salary to preach and teach the word publicly, but also privately through meetings throughout the week. When you give, you're allowing us to do outreach events in the community, to advertise on radio and online. You're, you're partnering with us to afford the print materials that we hand out every Sunday, to renovate our building in certain parts that need some tender love and care. Hey, this morning, I, I don't wanna shy away from it. I want you to get in on the joy of partnering with the work going on around here. I love the opportunity to give, and I know some of you do, because as our church gets to do things and move forward, there's such a satisfaction as someone who's partnering financially to look at that and say, I got to have a little part in that. I got to help be a part of that. And so Paul rejoices in the generosity of the Philippians because they partnered with his gospel work. Number two, we give to experience the joy of a future heavenly reward. Notice Paul starts not looking horizontally in an earthly sense of the gospel work, but he starts looking up to heaven when he thinks about their giving. Verse number 17, he makes it very clear, I'm not, out, I'm not in this to get money. Not because I desire a gift, Paul says. I desire, verse number 17, fruit, that may abound to your account. Now, when you and I read that word fruit, we're thinking agriculture, aren't we? But the word Paul uses there is not an agriculture term. It's a financial term. It's a banking term, Brother Mark. He's using an old Greek word for profit. Like when you, when you have your, your income and your expenses, and at the end, there's more, then zero, I think all of us, if we have that, we're pretty happy about that. That's the type of idea Paul's community. He's saying, I'm not desiring gain for myself. That's why it makes more sense to read this financially. He says, I'm desiring profit to your account. Now, Paul's not saying, I, I heard this often growing up from this verse, that, you know, when you give to missions, there's like a ledger in heaven of every soul that's saved and Jesus divides every soul up 10,000 ways for every person who gave to missions. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that when you and I give, it is a spiritual work unto God. And when we obey God, there is fruit, there is reward in heaven. That, that Jesus says this throughout his ministry, that we labor not for rewards in this life as Christians. We look for a reward that happens at a later date in heaven, and Paul is saying to this church, he's like, I, I'm, I'm not after your money. And I hope you know that this morning as your pastor, that's not the deal. I don't get a commission off of your tithes, by the way. Here's what Paul is saying, and here's what 
what I'm after this morning. I want you to experience the joy of a heavenly reward, like the one Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, which by the way is in the context of finances. Look at Matthew 6.20 on the screen. He says this, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying there is an earthly use for money but every earthly expenditure you make with your money has a timeline. It has an expiration date. It may not expire as quickly as the 2% milk in your fridge, but there will come a day that the house you bought, the car you bought, the clothes you bought, the things you invested in, the stocks you own will no longer be of benefit to you. But Jesus says, and Paul is repeating the same idea in Philippians, that when you and I give to God's work, there is a heavenly reward that has no expiration date. That when you invest in the work of God, it's similar almost to your investment in your retirement. You're creating an expenditure that does not immediately benefit you. But that sacrifice, though nobody on earth will see it, you're not gonna get a handwritten letter from me thanking you for your offerings. But God sees it and God takes note of it because he's a far better accountant and bookkeeper than the several we have in our church. He sees every expense item on that ledger and he stores it up in heaven where he will reward you for the fruits of your labor and the sacrifices you've made toward him. I also wanna say this, that I'm thankful when it comes to God's reward. God does not reward your giving based on the dollars and the cents you give. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. See, God doesn't give more rewards because somebody happens to give more money. I think the best way for us to view our giving is on a percentage basis because I've met plenty of Christians who are fabulously wealthy, but also fabulously stingy. I've met middle-class Christians or even lower-class Christians who don't have a lot of money but are extremely generous and their eye is on giving to the Lord's work. The amount you give financially is only relevant in one sense for you to self-identify your giving. The amount you give is relevant for you to look at that in comparison to what you spend on other things, and it can help you identify or assess the heart of your giving. Here's the truth about giving. It's hard because we don't see the payoff. There's no earthly justification for it. I'm not here to tell you, church family, that if you tithe, which is a great place to start. I don't think Jesus envisioned giving just stopping there. I think he envisioned more than that. I'm not here to tell you to get rich at all. There's no earthly reason to justify it. But what I am saying is that if you fail to show true generosity, you are missing out on a wonderful investment in your heavenly future. Here's why I wanna see some of you jump on board in your giving. If this 
is an area that you are weak in. I want you to anticipate your coming judgment before the Lord Jesus, not with fear, but with joy. With anticipation that he will reward you for your earthly sacrifice. Paul gives us a third reason to rejoice. He tells us to give so we can experience the joy of mirroring Christ's sacrifice for us. I want you to look at verse number 18, and I want you to notice the words he uses. They're not unintentional. Very intentional. When he speaks about their giving in verse number 18. Again, he says, I have all in abound. I'm full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And if you're a familiar reader of the Old Testament, this might sound familiar. He describes their giving this way. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. When Paul describes their financial giving with dollars and cents, he uses the word sacrifice. Now, when you think of the word sacrifice in the Old Testament, what images does it conjure up in your mind? Animals, right? In fact, this idea of an odor, Paul likely is quoting the account, I believe in 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, where when they establish the temple under Solomon, they have this gigantic sacrifice. I don't even remember the numbers, but it's bananas. How much? Bulls and goats and lambs, they sacrificed to God. And they had a huge national offering and they brought all these animals in and they sacrificed it before God. And in that account, it talks about that that sacrifice raises up to God as an odor, well-pleasing to God. Now let's do a little theological work here this morning, Christian. When you think of the Old Testament sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or goat, how does the New Testament tell us to look back on that sacrifice? What are those Old Testament sacrifices supposed to be pointing to and reminding us of? Whose sacrifice are those Old Testament sacrifices pointing us to? The sacrifice of Christ, of course. So Paul, when he notices their giving, when he sees that their giving, giving was not just token, it cost them something. Let me explain this more clearly. They had to give up something to give something. He says, when I think about that, it reminds me of the sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. The sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now, there's only one sacrifice that could actually be said to be acceptable to God. There's only one who offered a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God because there's only one sacrifice in history that was made by a perfect person by their own merit that had no stain, no imperfection, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Paul says this in Ephesians 5 too. Look at that verse. He uses the exact same language. He says, walk in love as Christ also had loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Your motivation to give sacrificially and generously to the Lord's work, whether it be through a tithe or beyond, is to mirror the complete sacrifice Christ gave for you. Christian, I want you to consider that Jesus gave everything and God only asks you to give some of your income. Jesus' sacrifice of himself was given of his own merit, but God asks us to give what he has already given us. Jesus paid it all. And we have the joy of mirroring that extraordinary once and for all sacrifice with something so pitily as our offerings in the plate. What a joy, what a privilege. Christian, the only reason that your offering in the plate looks remotely like Jesus is because of God's grace. By his grace, he looks down and he says, I know you, you're not, I'm not expecting you to kill yourself for me, but when I see you sacrifice financially, it reminds me of the well-pleasing sacrifice of my son. Christian, if you don't give sacrificially, you are missing out on the joy of mirroring the sacrifice of Jesus. And I think that this idea should cause us to ask a question about our own giving. If giving is supposed to mirror Christ's sacrifice for us, we might ask ourselves, does our giving truly mirror sacrifice or is it more of a token of what we can give because we don't want to give up other things that are more important to us. Here's the hard truth though. If you're going to give as God wants you to give, if you're going to give like Jesus gave, this is probably not the best thing for a pastor to say who's trying to motivate you to give, it will create a deficit in your life. It will create needs in your life. There will be things that you will have to go without so that you can give as God wants you to give. I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect many of us don't get in on biblical giving because we're so afraid of going without things that in reality are probably not as important. And that's where the last joy comes in. Because though giving will cause sacrifice and need in your life, and though I cannot promise you giving to God will make you rich, it won't. I can say, as Paul did, that if you give, if you give in such a way that it causes a deficit, God promises that sacrificial giving is met with his provision. Verse number 19 is such a beautiful verse. 
Christian, if you struggle with generosity, if you struggle with greed, which a lot of us don't want to self-identify as greedy people, but if you have a hard time giving to God, that's what that sin is. It's called greed. I would, call, I would challenge you to meditate on verse number 19, to embrace this verse for your own soul's sake. He says, but my God shall supply all, all, all of it, all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. In the culture, it's much like our culture, right? If someone buys you lunch, what do you feel obligated to do? Buy them lunch. Someone gives you a Christmas gift. You ever showed up to a party and everyone's giving gifts and you're like, I didn't know this was one of them parties. You know what I mean? I've had that. You're like, I, I need to give you something. Well, that's what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, I've received so generously from you, but he's a, I hate to break it to you, Philippian church, I can't pay you back. But he says, even though I can't pay you back, God will. And notice the language in verse number 19. He says, I, God is going to supply your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul says, you know how you know God will meet your needs? Because it's really, it's easy for a pastor to say that, right? Hey, you give to God, he'll meet your needs. And some of you right now in the chair is like, yeah, right. I've got this and I've got this and I've got this. By the way, I do too, right? We all have needs. We all have needs. So, so you might say, pastor, I would like something more tangible to prove that God's gonna meet my need if I start giving in the way that I know I need to. Paul says, I've got the proof. You wanna know what the proof of God's provision is? The proof of God's provision is the sacrifice of his son. Notice verse 19, look at it. I, God will supply all your needs according to, through the means of, his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Think about how God provided for you in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, he met a need that you created with your own sin. Through Jesus, God says, I met a need you didn't even know you had. Through Jesus, I met a need by the most extraordinary sacrifice. And he says, through Jesus, I met a need that was bigger than any financial need you'll ever have in your life. How do we know God will provide for us when we give? How do we know if we sacrifice to give financially? How are we supposed to make up the deficit that's created? We know that because we look at the cross and we say, God covered my needs there. He'll cover my needs on this one. He'll take care of it all. He'll meet all my needs. Pastor, if I give 10% as a tithe, how am I supposed to make it by? That's crazy talk. If I, if, I, if I give more because maybe I'm giving just a very small piece of income, how am I gonna be able to take care of this bill and this bill and this bill? And Paul answers that question for us perfectly. He says, when you give in a way that pleases God, God is there to take care of your needs. As I look at our church, and I've only been here a little bit under two years, 
But I know for a fact, there are people sitting in this room today who've seen God's provision in an extraordinary way. Who, when they didn't have a lot of money, stepped out and gave sacrificially to the Lord. They didn't have any guarantee. The only proof they had was Jesus. And God took care of them time after time. I could tell you from our own stories, I could tell you so many, so many, of times when my wife and I literally sat down for our, bu- our monthly budget meeting. We need to do that, by the way. <laughs> it's about that, that time of the month. And we sat down for our monthly budget meeting. And we're like, hopefully something happens. Well, there's, an, there's an item there that we could easily create more income from by decreasing our giving. We didn't do that. And God, by his miraculous grace, not long after we got down on our knees and prayed, what did he do? He met our giving with his provision. Christian, lovingly, I want to say this, that if you can trust Jesus to save you from your soul that was damned to hell, you can trust God to take care of your financial needs. Trusting Jesus for your soul is so much bigger. So if we can trust him to do that, Christian, trust him to take care of this. I want you to get in on giving to God because some of you maybe have missed out on the joy of seeing God meet a need you had no idea how it was going to be met. I can't say I know this for sure because I've never been a rich man, but I have a sneaking suspicion that there's far more joy in God meeting our needs than by us meeting our own. Are there strategic reasons for you to give to our ministry? Could I have had a business meeting today tell you five reasons why our church needs more people to give? Probably. But my greatest desire for you, church family, is to experience the blessings of biblical generosity Now, for some of you, that might mean that one spouse has to have the awkward conversation with the other spouse. Because in most marriages, there's one person who's really giving and generous with their money and one person who's really tight. For some of you, that means that you need to take a step of faith. You may need to be more strategic. Some of you, maybe the reason you can't give more is because you're not disciplined with your money and you'd have to have a budget and make some cutbacks. And I know all of those things don't feel fun. They don't feel like joys. But I'd encourage you to remember the blessings that we talked about today that are yours through Christ when you sacrifice and give to the Lord. Four of them. Four joys. The joy of partnering with gospel work. 
the joy of a future heavenly reward, the joy of mirroring Christ's sacrifice, and the joy of seeing God's provision. Let's pray together. Father, we give you glory because through Jesus, you met our deepest need. You met a need we didn't know we had, and you met a need that in no possible way could we dig ourselves out of it. Father, I pray that there would be some. I don't know who they are, but they do. Your Holy Spirit does. Who would stop missing out on the joys of giving. Who would step it up or get started giving so they could see you at work in their life. And God, ultimately we know we will give an account to you one day for our lives. There will be a heavenly accounting. There will be a heavenly ledger. Not that allows us entrance into heaven, but God by which you will reward us or not. I pray, Lord, we would, we would live with a mindset thinking of heaven more than thinking of now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.